0: One thing before we move on in uh, church history, um, I have to uh, ask for forgiveness for having skipped, missed, forgot one of the most uh, interesting and definitional stories of the Siege of Munster. Believe it or not, there's one more. Some of you may not be able to handle uh, anymore, uh, in regards to, uh, Munster. But I, I, <clears throat> if you ever do any reading on it, or if you hear anybody else lecture on it, and then you hear the story, you go, why didn't he tell us that? So I, I realized, I think later in the day, that I had skipped over it, and I was like, oh, idiot. Um, so it is the, the story of a 15-year-old girl, 15-year-old woman, Hilla Faken, H-I-L-L-E-F-E-Y-K-E-N, Hilla Faken. She's 15 years old, and in June of uh, 1534, she approaches King Yan and uh, proposes a plan to him. And remember, I had told you that the primary source of uh, reading and theology for the radicals at Munster was the Old Testament, not the New Testament. The New Testament got pretty short shrift, and the Old Testament was primarily what was read. And so the story of Deborah, uh, who had delivered Israel, and some, of the, some other stories sort of conglomerated together in the mind of this young lady. And she hatched a plan to where she would deliver Munster uh, by leaving the city um, and being taken to the prince-bishop and that she would kill him with a poisoned shirt And so the various stories were that this fine linen shirt um, was soaked in poison. Uh, Another story was that it had been taken off the dead dead body of a man with leprosy. Maybe both. I don't know. I don't know how she carried it. I don't know. But the idea was that she would get all dolled up, and they took her, you know, because remember, by this time, under King Yan, you basically had a communist system and uh, everybody had, had supposedly given their money into the central treasury and all their treasuries and stuff. And so the central treasury had lots of nice stuff in it and gold and jewels and stuff like that. And so evidently she was at age 15 still a, a beautiful, beautiful woman. And so they dolled her up big time and put jewels on her and gave her this shirt and sent her out. And so on June 16th, 1534, uh, she is met by the Prince Bishop's men outside the city. And and she isn't taken to him. She's taken to uh, his high bailiff, Dirk von Merveldt. And uh, she tells the story, you know, why have you left? And well, such and such about my husband and... And uh, they, they would you would kill him if, if we escaped together, but if I come and, and I can give you access to the city, uh, then you know, would you spare him and tells this whole story? And so eventually she, she is taken to the prince bishop. The problem is that the very same night another man escapes Munster who is trying to get out of Munster. And is not trying to deceive the Prince Bishop and kill him. And he has heard of what they've done with Hilla, the young girl. And so he comes and he decides he's going to buy his um, freedom by betraying her. And so he says, hey, uh, there's this woman that's gone out of the city And she's very pretty, and she's carrying a gift, and this is what it's all about. And so they take uh, her, and uh, uh, they face her with these accusations. Uh, She is then put on the wheel. She is put to the wheel. Now, I had heard about the wheel. Uh, You can't read much of history without reading about the wheel, but I didn't know what it was. Um, man, I, you know, you look at the killing fields of Cambodia and stuff, man is still incredibly brutal to man. But the most cultured people could be incredibly brutal uh, in, in those days. And so to be tortured on the wheel, I had thought, you know, it was putting you on a wheel and making you spin real fast or something. <laughs> you know, like the, the old, uh, remember those merry-go-rounds we, we used to have in the, um, uh, we had one in the, in the playground near me at my house, and, man, we got that thing going dangerously fast. I mean, you come off that thing as fast as it was going, and you did kill yourself. But um, now you can't go that fast, and so I guess you can't get, Man, did we get vertigo! I mean, we're talking throwing up vertigo, just projectile vertigo. It was bad, but it was so much fun. Um, uh, and especially the big kids would come along, and we'd hold on for dear life, and they'd get that thing just about taking off. It was just anyway. So I thought maybe that's what it was. No, uh, instead they 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 strap you to the ground, and they're they're using a wheel, that big old you know metal. It's, got, it's metal on the outside. It's got the wood on the inside spokes. They're using a wheel to break your arms and your legs. So below the knee, above the knee, below the elbow, above the elbow, they're just they're just 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 breaking your body up into pieces, um, and then they thread you into the wheel with all your broken bones and stuff, and then hang you up on a spike on the wheel uh, until you die, uh, get eaten by birds and stuff. Okay, so they've already given her the torture of the wheel. They've broken her body up and. And uh, so um, she has uh, confessed uh, to what she was, she was doing. Um, she was now ready with calm courage to suffer her punishment, she said, knowing that it was for the glory of God and that her soul would never die. After further torture on the wheel, Hilla faced her executioner with a smile and assured him that he had no power over her. We shall see about that, he answered, and struck off her head. So uh, the story of Hilla attempting to kill the Prince Bishop and break the siege uh, with the poisoned shirt um, was sort of uh, a central story that, with all the other wild stories going on, somehow I forgot to include. And so if, uh, if they ever do get around to making the movie, uh, which, uh, again, I, I do not understand why they have not... Um, then you will definitely, uh, I'm not sure who they'll cast as, as Hilla, but that would be a starring role, I'm sure, um, in, uh, in that particular story. So just some more um, amazing stuff from, uh, from, from Munster. Now, so having caught you up on that, and with my sincere apologies for having forgotten last time, it does seem like that was a very, very long time ago. Uh, we have basically one last uh, section of church history to uh, to cover, and uh, that is the Reformation in Geneva, and specifically uh, the life and ministry of uh, the French reformer John Calvin. And uh, there are many people who would assume that when we study church history, all we study is John Calvin, uh, which is... Obviously not uh, the case at all. Uh, but it is necessary, I think, helpful, uh, to have at least a meaningful outline <clears throat> in your mind uh, of Calvin's life. There are uh, It is interesting that vast majority of people have never heard of Jan Mathis or Jan of Leiden or Bernard Nipperdaling or any of those people at Munster and have barely even heard of Munster but uh, all you have to do is say, Servetus, and everyone's like, ah, and they start frothing at the mouth and, and twitching and things like that. So church history has a, a way of remembering interesting aspects, and certainly uh, Calvin is uh, vilified in an astounding uh, fashion uh, by history, uh, but he's also greatly honored uh, by history. Uh, There are many in uh, secular teaching positions uh, who would recognize uh, that Calvin and his writings had more influence upon the development of um, a constitutional republic and other concepts like that uh, in Western thought, especially the Puritan emphasis upon work ethic and um, things like that than almost anybody else. They, if you just stand back and go, so who's, whose works were being read uh, by the Puritans who were influencing um, you know, the development of English common law at the very time when the United States is in formation and things like that, and it's everybody Read Calvin, everyone read the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Um, many of the major schools and uh, schools of thought uh, in the English-speaking world, Uh, in Scotland, and so many Scotch-Irish came to the United States. Um, Great influence, uh, either by direct reading or through social influence, uh, came from Calvin and... uh, that book, which he first publishes in 1535, uh, called The Institutes of of the Christian Religion. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that in a a moment. So, um, in regards to Calvin, uh, he is born July 10th, 1509, in Noyon, France. Um, So he is a full-blooded Frenchman. He is the son of a notary, so it's not a, he's not a peasant. Uh, he's in what would be called the middle class, basically. Um, his mother died when Calvin was very young. Uh, and at age of 14, he was sent to Paris to study in 1523. So the Reformation has already begun um, in Wittenberg, and it's in the first few years in Zurich at this point. Um, like Luther, his father had decided he should go into law. There are many fathers who would like to have lawyers for sons. Evidently, <clears throat> I guess that's a. I guess that was the equivalent of a four hundred one of a good four hundred one k in that uh, in that day, was to have your kid have a good solid uh, income like that. Um, his father dies in 1531, but Calvin finishes his law degree anyway. Um, he was uh, an excellent uh, student, uh, very bright and intelligent. Um, he publishes his first work at the ripe old age of 23 years of age, which was a commentary on Seneca, uh, the Roman. Uh, scholar and writer and historian and so on and so forth uh, from the ancient world. Uh, That commentary shows excellent abilities and knowledge of language and patristics. So uh, Latin and uh, Greek and the early church fathers and ancient sources. uh, At age 23, uh, Calvin has a command of all of these things, but uh, there was Certainly, no evidence of any uh, spiritual aspirations at this point in time. Um, he received a, a humanist education there in France, and again, that term humanist uh, being defined by the fact that Erasmus is still alive at this point in time. So, odd fontes to the sources, the languages, so on and so forth. Strong in logic. In rhetoric, Greek, Latin, and history. Um, Things that... They still teach logic over there at the school there, Brother Callahan? No? Were you the last one to get to teach it over there, I wonder? Uh, That kind of uh, the the trivium, uh, the classical education... uh, no longer prevalent in our society by any stretch of the imagination, and uh, if you're not taught to think and not taught to speak and express yourself, uh, you're going to be controlled by people who will take advantage of your inability to think and to and who have the ability to express themselves. And unfortunately, I think that's what we see going on around us uh, right right now. But he receives that education that is going to come out very clearly in his um, his writings and his his ministry. Now, one of the things that we hear all the time um, is, you know, a modern fundamentalist will look back upon Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and say, these men were not converted. No, not, don't do it, get me wrong. There are plenty of people who would fall into what's generally called a fundamentalist camp who would not question their salvation. But, there are many who do, and one of the arguments that they make is that, well, if you don't know the day and the hour, or you accepted Jesus into your heart, you must not be a Christian. So, there are difficulties in pinpointing the exact time of Calvin's conversion, Um. Because he does not speak much of himself. And in fact, you cannot go and visit Calvin's grave. It was his desire that he be buried in an unmarked grave. There's an unmarked grave that tradition says may be Calvin's, but he did not want monuments and things like that. I think he would be really ticked off by the uh, by the huge statues that exist of him at various places. Um, and would probably take a ball-peen hammer to any one of them. But um, he didn't speak much of himself in his introduction to the Psalms. Now, his huge commentary on the Bible remains, one of the things that, for me, is part of Calvin's enduring legacy. This is primarily true of the Institutes, but it really goes beyond that to so much more of his writing, especially his commentaries. Uh, I would say that Calvin's biblical commentary remains in the top ten you would want to have for anywhere where it's extant. He did not finish the commentary. Uh, for example, he did not write a commentary on the book of Revelation because he, unlike many people today, said, I really don't understand what that's saying. Um, and he did not finish the Old Testament. He was in the process of it. It breaks off, I think, in Ezekiel, if I recall correctly, because he died. Um, So it's not complete, but most of it's there. And it remains to this day extremely useful and relevant. And when you read the Institutes, the highest compliment and praise I can give to Calvin is what I have said many times, and that is that um, the ink... Still smudges on the institutes, and what I mean by that is um, when you would before modern methodologies of printing uh, when you first put that ink onto the page you have to you have to let it dry now they've developed inks that are pretty much instant transfer and they won't smudge and things like that but Uh, The point is that when I say the ink still smudges is that the institutes sound like they were written contemporaneously with us today. They, it it is, I don't know how to write in such a way that a hundred years from now, it will sound like I was addressing the issues of that day. I can't do that. But he could, and I don't know how. Um... Does he make reference to things of his day? Sure, but it's it's fascinating that even in dealing with the enthusiasts of his day, which we would identify, I think, with uh, the TBN crowd in 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 a sense, um, it, it remains relevant to our day. It, it he he didn't get into so, so many personal issues that time that it that it just grounded at that point in history, and then it becomes irrelevant 20 years later. And I don't know how he did that. And that's why I say, you know, people are always asking, well, what commentaries should I buy on the Bible and stuff like that? And one well, of the best ones to, to have, uh, and, and one that I still will default to, uh, is Calvin's. Now, have we advanced in our knowledge of the text and history and language since then? Sure. But it, it, it is, um, in the vast majority of time, what you will find in the Old Testament, especially for Calvin, is a whole lot better than almost anything you get today, because his is a believing commentary. It's based upon the text and upon what it's really saying, rather than <sighs> so many of the Old Testament commentaries you have to plow through today are so... Taken over by modernistic speculations about when this was written, when that was written, everything else. You you can almost never get anything meaningful out of them. And so, um, his I, I highly recommend if you have not obtained them. Generally available, not only in obviously hard copy, but uh, I think a number. I think I think like Olive Tree has them for free. I, I think they are online for free. And I think they're either a free or a super cheap module in almost any. Um, I would imagine uh, eSword probably has them and, you know, Olive Tree and Lagos and Accordance. The, they're, they're generally available uh, electronically as well as they look nice on the shelf too. Uh, you know, if you're looking to fill that hole in the, uh, in the shelf or something like that, that's a, that's a good thing too. So I recommend them to you. But in the introduction of the Psalms, he mentions a sudden conversion that he experienced. Many theories have been put forth. Uh, The best information, I believe, points to a period in 1534. 1534. Uh, Because in April of 1534, Calvin visits the aged Lefebvre, a great French proto-reformer. We don't know what he says, what Lefebvre says to him, but we know that Lefebvre, like Erasmus, had um, friendly feelings toward Luther and Lutheranism and the Reformation. Immediately after that meeting in 1534, Calvin travels to Nyon. He resigns his benefices that his father had arranged for him, Remember, benefices were a clerical payment, which was the, it was basically the mechanism of the time that was a scholarship. Um, it was the church's form of scholarship uh, that would give you funds to be able to go and study someplace else. He resigns his benefices and almost immediately begins work on the institution, the institutions of the Christian religion. Um, There are multiple versions of the Institutes. I'm sure you know the four-book, normally two-volume set that is available today in hardback is is the last Latin edition he did in 1559. He did a later edition in French before his death in 1564, but the last official Latin version. Was fifteen fifty nine, and most of our English translations are of that fifteen fifty nine, one. Um, so, probably, spring of fifteen thirty four, um, Calvin is exposed to uh, the message of the Reformation. He is going to be a less emotional and fiery, but more consistent and exegetical defender of justification by faith than Luther. And that's from the earliest period. So, I would say somewhere in the spring of 1533, late winter, uh, I'm sorry, winter of 1533, spring of 1534, um, Calvin is converted and embraces the gospel of grace. Um, So he's all of um, not quite yet 25. Um, And so he starts working on Institutio in less than a year. He writes the first edition. Now the first edition is only about yay big. It's still got all of the major themes and stuff, but People have done entire doctoral dissertations just on the development of the institutio, the institutions of the Christian religion, over Calvin's lifetime. And it's all always keep something in mind that a friend of mine pointed me to back in seminary long, long ago, and I've remembered it ever since then. And that is, Calvin himself said, "If you really want to know what I believe, go to the Institutes." Not to the commentaries. What what he's saying is, I do not intend the commentaries to be a systematic expression of my belief. He recognized that, given that he'd be looking at a particular text in a particular context, he was not attempting to write a systematic theology in the commentaries. And so you can go to the commentaries and come up with some interesting interpretations of Calvin. But if you really want to take Calvin seriously, anything he says in, in the commentaries needs to be placed within the overarching fabric and framework of the institutes. Because he himself said to do that. He said, if you want to know what I believe, that's where it is. And that needs to be the lens through which you read everything else. And there is a great, great deal about the literature. Uh, he was a voluminous uh, letter writer and in later years was extremely influential in sort of accomplishing amongst the Reformed what Marburg tried to accomplish earlier on, but failed. Uh, Calvin moved that forward a good bit. Um, but I Remember, Marburg was before Calvin's conversion. Briefly before, but just before. Calvin's conversion. Calvin is a second-generation reformer. He really is coming on the scene after the initial work of Luther and uh, and Zwingli and and others. And so, uh, in less than a year, Calvin writes the Institutes of Christian Religion, first published in Basel, Switzerland. And so, all of a sudden, this clear, concise, compelling, well-argued, scholarly defense Of the Reformed faith just appears out of nowhere like lightning. Where'd this thing come from? Who is this guy? Uh, Never heard of him before. Uh, Who is this, Jean Jean Calvin? Uh, Frenchman. Frenchman? Really? Um, Now, Calvin puts this out, and then what does he want to do with his life? Well, basically, what Calvin would like to do is live in a library and write scholarly books. He would like to live a qui- the quiet life of a scholar and uh, do research and writing and have the freedom to do this. And That's what he wants to do. So he figures the best place to do this is Strasbourg. Martin Buzer. Martin Buzer has... Uh, you know, establish that place as a place where there's freedom and uh, acceptance of different views and things like that. So he wants to go to Strasbourg. One little problem: um, there's a war going on <laughs> between him and Strasbourg. And so he checks out Google Maps, and um, you know, he gets out the cell phone and. Hits the, uh, the directions and uh, big old red line, war, can't go this way. <laughs> Rerouting. Um, and um, it puts him, uh, the scary thing is there would be some people going, oh, really? Uh, no. Um, but uh, he does get rerouted, uh, just not by Google Maps. Um, he has to go the long way to get around the area of, of warfare. And instead, he has to pass through the city of Geneva. And he only intended to stay the night in Geneva. When he arrived in that city, the last thing on his mind is he was going to be spending the vast majority of the rest of his days on earth in that city. That was not his plan. He was going to spend the night and move on in the morning. But what happens is one of those fascinating stories of church history and the providence of God. I don't know what the conversation was that he had with the innkeeper. Um, Did he give a copy of his book to somebody? I don't know. But the Reformation had already begun in Geneva. Geneva. And it had begun under Pierre Farrell, or Farrell, as some people would say. That makes him sound a little bit wilder than he actually was, but there may be something in the name. Uh, History records Farrell as a redheaded, fiery... He, He was everything that Calvin was not. In, you know, Calvin's the retiring scholar, the dweeb, the nerd, the geek, whatever term you want to use. And Farrell is the fiery preacher. And somehow, don't know how, word gets to Farrell that the author of that fantastic book that none of us have ever heard of before is at the inn. And he's only going to be there tonight. He's leaving tomorrow. So Farrell makes a direct line to the inn and knocks on Calvin's door. And I don't know if you remember the Jack Chick tracks from long ago where like this was your life, where your whole life is splashed up on a big old screen for everybody in heaven to watch. I don't think that's going to happen, by the way. Um, But if we do, in heaven, get to see some of this stuff... Um, this is one encounter I would love to watch because I can just see the dynamics of it in light of how both Farrell and Calvin described it years later. And they would remain friends with stresses and strains, but they would remain friends the rest of their lives. I think, if I recall correctly, not 100% certain, but if I recall correctly, Farrell outlives Calvin. Um, But... Um, basically, Farrell barges into his room and says, did you write this book? Yeah, I I wrote that book. This is fantastic. Well, thank you. Would you like me to sign it or something? And um, and, um, Farrell basically says, look, the Lord has begun something here in Geneva, and the Genevans are rebelling against the bishop, Uh, and uh, they are responding to my preaching. But I know my limitations. And this place needs discipline, and this place needs theology, and this place needs order. And it needs what I can't give it, but you can. And so God wants you to stay here and help me. (laughs) And Calvin's like, you know, it's funny, God didn't tell me that. Um, and I, I can just see this conversation. I can just see it going back and forth and the dynamics involved. And so eventually Calvin tells us that Farrell just, you know, he's already got red hair and he can get a real red face. Uh, and Farrell says, look, I've asked you where you're going. You've told me you're going to Strasbourg to be a scholar. God's church needs you here, needs you now, and God is going to damn your studies if you leave this place and go to Strasbourg. And something tells me he did not whisper that. Um, Something tells me if this was an inn where there were other rooms around, everybody else knew what was being discussed uh, at that point in time as well. And so I can just see this retiring, brilliant, but somewhat backwards Calvin, you know, sort of the Lucy Linus effect, you know, the, the peanuts. Whenever Lucy yells at Linus, his hair goes straight back, you know? Well, I think that's Lucy was Feral and, and Linus was Calvin. And, and um, so Calvin doesn't leave. Um, he, he stays and reluctantly, Uh, takes on the role of co-minister there in Geneva um, for about less than two years. Less than two years. Because it stinks. It is a terrible time in Calvin's life. He has zero experience, pastorally speaking. None. He's a scholar. And maybe this is one of the reasons I have, you know, I've, I sort of have a warm spot for Calvin. I, I, get, I get him more than, than most might. Um, but the, the combination of the fiery preaching of Pharaoh... Of And then Calvin's lucid exposition and stuff. And what Calvin insists is that they enforce the already existing rules of moral behavior for the city. He didn't come up with new stuff. This stuff was already there. It's just it it hadn't been enforced for a long, 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 long time. And so Calvin is a sacralist. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt on this subject, haven't we? Um, He isn't introducing the idea of, well, we're going to have a a separated church, and only the people who want to come to church, come to church, and that kind of thing. No, the the city has to be reformed as a whole. He's a sacralist, just like everybody else. And so it does not take much time for he and Pharaoh to make tremendous enemies, Tremendous enemies there in Geneva. So even though the Reformation has started, and even though they've told the bishop to take a hike, Bishop Sadaletto, they ain't so happy with the choice that they've made. And so Farrell and, and Calvin spend a, a miserable year and three quarters in Geneva trying to establish a, a biblical church uh, before they are invited strongly to exit stage left they are ridden out of town on a rail Um, and this is calvin's first experience with pastoral ministry uh, is the rather recalcitrant hard-necked Genevans. and um, so when they're kicked out guess where calvin goes well, that was took me a long time, but I'm still going to get Strasbourg, <laughs> and so he heads for Strasbourg, uh, where for a few years he is going to have some of the most peaceful period of time in his life. Where he is then going to gain true pastoral experience because he becomes the pastor of the French-speaking congregation in Strasbourg, and this becomes. A very important, informative period in his uh, in his life, and that is where we will pick up uh, next time. All right, let's close the word. Once again, Father, we thank you for this opportunity of looking uh, back and uh, seeing what you've done in the lives of those who've come before us. We ask that you would help us to learn from these things, and Lord, that you be with us now as we go into worship. May be what is done be. Pleasing in your sight, we pray in Christ's name.